Hello, everyone, and welcome to the In Defense of Plants podcast, the official podcast of InDefenseofPlants.com. What's up? This is your host, Matt. Welcome to the show. How's everyone doing this week? Today, we're going back in the archives to look at an episode that was mentioned in last week's episode with Dr. Jeff Banka. We were talking about plant architecture, you know, shape, form, function, that sort of thing, and he brought up the work of Dr. Carl Nicholas, and it reminded me that I spoke with Dr. Nicholas back in 2017. This is one of the most informative and exciting conversations I have had in my entire time doing this podcast, and why not bring it back for those that haven't heard it yet? Now, remind you, I did this in 2017, so I didn't have all this fancy recording equipment. I was doing it on a bare bones, almost no budget. So yes, I know the sound quality is a little less than stellar. You do not have to email me about it. I am aware, but it's listenable. So just take it for what it is and appreciate how far the podcast has come since then. But before we get to that conversation, I have a quick message from our friends over at Radiolab. Hey, there's a bunch of really great stuff here to suck on. What? On Radiolab? We're going up. These trees are huge. Into the treetops. Uh, it's like being a detective. To chase a mystery. There's something going on up here. What, what's, ha- what's about to happen? Oh my gosh. And stumble into a secret garden. This is amazing. I know, I know. Whoa. In the sky. Forests on forests. Listen wherever you get podcasts. All right, make sure to check out Radio Lab and Science Friday. But until then, let's head on over to my conversation with Dr. Carl Nicholas. I hope you enjoy. Thank you for coming on the podcast. How about you give us a nice introduction to who you are and what it is you do? Well, I'm a professor at Cornell University in the Department of Plant Biology. I teach some of the introductory courses, but my research is principally in an area called biophysics, which is the application of physics, mathematics, uh, and uh, biomechanics to understanding uh, plant or animal biology. Interesting. And that's cool that you're kind of bridging this gap between two of the major sciences. You know, I think in in a lot of uh, college courses, at least, they're taught as very separate objects. But when you think about biology, especially in terms of uh, adaptive evolution and what can and cannot make it in this world, physics plays a huge role in that, right? Yeah, basically, I I think the philosophy of, um, for example, physics as applied to biology comes from uh, the mark of four, uh, one of the mysteries of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, uh, where Sherlock Holmes says to Watson, how many times have I told you that once you eliminate the impossible, whatever remains, however improbable, must be true. So what we're doing in biophysics is basically uh, trying to strip away uh, how much of biology can be directly explained using physical principles, and then whatever is left over, uh, basically we have to retreat um, and say, well, so far this is entirely in the purview of biology. Right, and what is it about plants necessarily that makes them an excellent model for this sort of system of uh, investigation and inquiry? 
Well, two things. If you're dealing with terrestrial plants, uh, they don't run away. Uh, <laughs> they have to cope with uh, predators, in other words, herbivores, and they have to deal with all of the environmental changes that can happen, especially if you think about a tree that started its life and ends its life in the same location and that may survive for more than 200 years, like an old oak tree. Uh, the other the other thing is that uh, plants don't have complex neurological or muscular behavior. They're basically um, structures that are biochemically very active. Right. So you have this system that's very much tied to the spot that it's in. And like you said, you don't have the complexity of having a lot of different muscular issues or um, even a nervous system uh, uh, targeted in there. But at the core of it, I mean, you've been able to look at plants and say, here is a, a fundamental basics of what a plant needs to grow and survive, correct? Correct, right. Uh, it doesn't matter if I'm thinking about plants that evolved 600 million years ago, or if I look into my garden today, they basically have to perform the same biological functions. Uh, they have to intercept sunlight because they're photosynthetic. They have to transport fluids, water, air, uh, like any other living thing. They have to deal with mechanical forces, the force of gravity, the force of wind, the force of something falling on a branch. And last but not least, if an organism is going to evolve, if, if its lineage is going to evolve, it has to undergo sexual reproduction. So those are the four, if you want to call them tasks, that that every plant has to perform. Yeah, and it's it's wonderfully elegant in its simplicity of breaking it down into those four tasks. I mean, when you really do think about it, those are the everything that a plant is working towards, you know, maybe without agency coming into the, the whole ordeal. But, um, you know, I, I'm just picturing you in like a wind tunnel subjecting different plants to all these stresses. I mean, where do you begin with something like this? Uh, you know, I, I would assume a, a strong understanding in how the physics of wind or gravity or disseminating propagules works. I mean, how do you go from working with a living organism to stripping it down to those four basic uh, operations? Well, actually, in the case of plants, even plants that have very complicated branching systems and that have very complicated leaves and flowers, we have some very fundamental equations that come directly out of physics. I can give you one easy example, and that's what's called the drag force. So if you have a plant, an animal, or even a rock, and water or air is flowing over it, the projected area of the rock, the plant, or the animal is obstructing the flow of the fluid. And that imposes what's called a drag force. Now, we can calculate the drag force um, if we know, for example, the density of the fluid, like the density of air, uh, the projected area, which we can either measure directly or we can hypothesize what it would look like, and the speed of the flow. Uh, so if you have those three pieces of information, you can calculate that force. And you can do it for hypothetical organisms, like those created in a computer simulation, or you can do it for a living organism 
and test your prediction by putting a living organism into a wind tunnel and, and measuring the drag force. So I wasn't too far off with that imagery then. Not at all. No, not at all. Not at all. And you can use a wind tunnel also to look at how organisms like plants disperse uh, pollen, spores, or fruits into the air. You just stick the living thing into a large wind tunnel, start cranking up the speed of the airflow, or if you have a flume, the speed of the water, and you can measure the distance that those propagules can travel uh, from the parent plant. I like that. I mean, it's like you're taking proof of concept. You have models that work on paper, and then you can see this you know, replicated throughout physical uh, reactions and, and actual physical entities. Oh, yeah. Uh, a good friend of mine uh, came up with a wonderful quote, and, and that is that uh, theories without data are ghosts, and data without theory are corpses. You need, <laughs> you, you need both. You need to have both empirical testing and you need a theoretical understanding of what you're testing. And you put those two together and you have what I think is good science. Oh, I, I really love that. And, uh, you know, you mentioned something about uh, you know, whether it's a hypothetical organism or an organism that lived millions of years ago when plants were just crawling out onto land for the first time. Just, uh, you know, how these themes, these physical laws of the universe kind of have played through time and time again and have been there this whole time. So, you know, you get through this modeling process and then truthing in real life, you know, a window back into deep time that, um, you know, that just complements the already amazing fossil record we have. We do have a wonderful fossil record. Of course, you always have to bear in mind, and it's something that is kind of scary in a way, and that is uh, 90% of whatever lived in the past isn't preserved in the <laughs> fossil record. We only, have a, we only have a small percentage that have actually been preserved. And the other important thing to think about fossil record is no matter how good you are in terms of evolving, that means that the end game of evolution is death, extinction. <laughs> Everything that has ever lived will die, and death is how things get selected for. Without it, really, evolution doesn't work, right? <laughs> well, it works, but it doesn't work... Uh, it just it, it doesn't have a happy ending. I mean, evolution does, doesn't have a purpose. It doesn't even have a direction. It's actually interesting that the word progress comes from a Latin verb, progressor. And it actually, in Old Latin, means um, movement from point, a slow movement from point to point. Well, point to point doesn't necessarily mean you're moving in one direction. Mm. You can come back. <laughs> and there's no hierarchy either. It's not like they're working to attain a goal. There's no agency. Right. It's just what lives passes on its genes. Yep. So I'm, I'm very curious, you know, and I think a lot of the listeners will be too, is how do you go from these physical principles and understanding how a plant or, you know, propagules are behaving in a wind tunnel setting to a computer-based model that is of use to you in your work? You know, how do you, where do you start with something like that? Well, we're kind of lucky because the earliest plants to live on land uh, didn't have leaves, didn't have stems, didn't have roots. Uh, they had cylindrical axes that branched in various ways, 
And some of those axes provided mechanical support, others intercepted sunlight, and others at their tips produced structures that were reproductive and released spores. So, you know, this is like botanical tuning forks. You just stick together <laughs> little little cylinders in different lengths and, and different diameters in different configurations together mathematically. And computers can can do that even when I started doing this work many decades ago. We used Atari computers uh, uh, arranged in, in parallel to do the simulation. So you can create what is called a, a morpho space. The morpho comes from morphology. Mm-hmm. And the idea is that the computer, you instruct the computer in ways that allow it to generate all mathematically conceivable branching patterns. And, and the number is in the millions. Wow. And then what you can do is you can go into that space and you can apply these equations that come from physics to say, okay, you right there, you little branching thing, how good are you at intercepting sunlight? How good are you at resisting mechanical forces? How tall are you and how many reproductive structures do you have? And in a certain wind speed, how far did those spores go? Um, how well can you conserve water because of your surface area to volume relationships? And so you can evaluate the ability of that structure to perform those four biological tasks that we just previously discussed. And then you can score all those different branching patterns, and you can make comparisons among them. And then what's really fun is you go into that morpho space and you identify the branching pattern that is the earliest one to occur in the fossil record. Wow. And and then you say, okay, let's do some evolving. And you can say, let me look around that little structure and see if there's another structure that's better. Hmm. And you can keep searching. You, you get these what are called uh, walks, walks on an adaptive fitness landscape. And you can then look at how those structures, quote, have changed over time. And what we found in our early simulations is that the search algorithm, the thing looking for getting better and better and better, was giving us back shapes of plants that are preserved in successively younger rocks. (laughs) Oh, wow. So it was mimicking that search pattern was creating um, morphological changes that we actually saw in the fossil record. That's incredible. Um, You know... I'm no, just, I hope it isn't as incredible. I hope it's credible. No, that's true. That's a very good point. That is very credible. But uh, it, what, what's amazing to me is you, you set this in play in motion for the first time. And, you know, you always think of science scientists having that eureka moment or that moment when the data spits out something. Informa- Did you get goosebumps the first time you saw these iterations, yeah. these random walks yeah. producing yeah. things? That's yeah. amazing. Well, it wasn't, remember, it wasn't a random walk. It was looking, it was, per- the algorithm was purposely looking for the thing around the last thing it found that was better okay. than the last thing. Um, so it was definitely saying it made the assumption that evolution would be improving the performances of those four functions. Okay. 
So the bias there, if you could call it that, or the direction was just what works versus what doesn't. Right. And that, then, remember earlier I said biophysics, we eliminate the impossible. Correct. And whatever remains has at least a chance. <laughs> Barring any stochastic uh, major cataclysmic events, great. Right. Evolution doesn't seek always the best thing. Uh, natural selection does work on what's available, and it basically eliminates the stuff that works the least. But it can't by itself, create something that wasn't there to begin with. Right. So that's why you don't see pigs suddenly having wings. The, the tools for building <laughs> right. wings are just aren't there. Right, right, right. Pegasus is a beautiful concept, but um, the, a horse with wings, first, wouldn't evolve, and second of all, it would never be able to fly. <laughs> I, so another thing that kind of runs through uh, your your work, or at least a theme for this this part of your work, is that uh, this idea of natural selection being very strong or comparatively weak. And I think you were kind of hinting at it there as to maybe not necessarily selecting for the best, but just what works. I mean, what has right. what has this model taught you in that regard? I mean, are you seeing strong evidence for strong natural selection, or is it kind of like a mix of the two? I think it's definitely a mix. Uh, because evolution is a combination of chance and necessity. The chance, these are mutations, uh, novel genetic information that gives an opportunity to create something new. Uh, but chance is, well, do I get that mutation? And if I do get that mutation, does it work in the particular environment in which that organism exists. Hmm. So it's it's I mean I've written books of and papers about this and I and I think that's one of the things that comes out of the simulations because um if you run the simulations that I just described and let that adaptive walk go searching and then you change the criterion for that search, you find that you find totally different kinds of morphologies, totally different kinds of branching patterns. And the environment over millions and tens of millions and hundreds of millions of years has changed dramatically. I mean, we know from the fossil record and the geological record that Earth has gone through many cycles of global cooling and global warming. Right. So things that were things that worked in the past when the environment was very warm um, won't be working when the environment gets very cold and vice versa. So you can go into this model and tweak those parameters and then end up seeing the changes that result in that. And do they, again, kind of repeat what is actually seen in the natural world with, with varying plant communities? Some do, some don't. And, okay. the ones that, and the reason that you get negative and positive results is because uh, the world is much more complicated <laughs> than what is in my little computer programs. For example, in my programs, we have no herbivory. Uh, we don't have animals going around chomping down on things, you know. Mm -hmm. um, and we don't have, well, we can create earthquakes in a manner of speaking, but we don't have the ability to predict what would happen when things get very cold or very hot. We know that photosynthesis is dependent on temperature, 
Um, but there are a lot of ways in plants get around that, like dormancy, for example. Right. So the, 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 the story is getting at the fundamentals of what we're seeing, but the world is shockingly complex at times, and uh, it's really hard to predict <laughs> everything. Very much so. Wonderful. Yeah. I, I mean, even the global climate modelers are having a tough time, particularly with CO2. Mm. It's very hard to create a, a very reliable, highly predictive model because we can, pre- well, they can predict all of the consequences of all of the other variables. But CO2 is very complicated because of how it's sequestered in living plants, how it's sequestered in uh dead organic matter in the soil, how the ocean is absorbing and releasing CO2. It gets many assumptions underlie uh, some of those sophisticated models. Hmm. Yeah, there's just so many uh, parallels there with our own society, too, and just in terms of how binary we want to be sometimes and how impossible that is. But uh, another thing that's amazed me is, you know, your your work has evolved over the years as computing power has changed, as the you know you're you've built on the approaches you've made, and you've done a lot of work recently in modeling how plants uh, in a system can interact with one another under these physical principles. Correct? Yeah, we have. We've looked at competition amongst plants, and so we can talk about or simulate the consequences of self shading. So if you have a neighbor that's taller than you are and it's stealing the light from you, uh, what can you do about it? And those early simulations, remember I said those plants that didn't have leaves, um, we now have simulations of, of plants with different shaped leaves. Mm. Uh, and it, it gets very complicated there because it, it, there are variables like how many leaves, how big, how are they oriented, what is the shape of the individual leaf, et cetera, et cetera. So, uh, you know, I could have 100 years of lifetime and not do all the simulations that we would need to do. A lot of, a lot of my recent work now is very pencil and paper, very theoretical, looking really? at sca- scaling relationships. In other words, size-dependent variation in plant structure and function. So how things change as, you know, you say you go from a redwood seedling to a, you know, 350-foot redwood tree. Right, right, exactly. Right. You know, small things don't feel gravity that much. Big things do. You can drop, I hope none of your listeners would think that I would actually do this, but you can drop a, a mouse down a stairwell and it'll bounce back. You drop a hippopotamus and you have a mess. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm going to say that's uh, firmly grounded in the hypothetical world. I don't think anyone's going to fall for that. But <laughs> Good. I'm, get... glad you're, I'm glad your listeners don't think I'm some kind of monster. No, they're a smart bunch. But that's that's a really good point is things change as you get bigger. And, um, you know, it's a new set of challenges. But I, it's it's amazing that, again, it kind of comes like the scaling relationship just comes from the fact that you have these very fundamental basics and just how that shapes not only larger organisms over time, but how these individual, you know, physical things affecting individuals, affecting the form and function of a, a group of individuals over time, and then scaling that up to the complexity that we see in, say, a forest. Uh, it's it's yes. like the fractal universe all coming together. No, that's absolutely right. And, and a lot of the most recent theory dealing with scaling 
biological consequences of inc- increasing size, then it's actually bra- based on fractal mathematics. Oh, wow. So you've touched exactly exactly on, on some of the theories that are being worked on right now. Hmm. So what is the direction you hope to, to, to take this? I mean, where, what do you, you said a lot of it's pen and pencil and, you know, working things out by hand, but I mean, uh, you know, the, in terms of broader impacts, as everyone talks about, like what, uh, you know, what direction is this kind of work going in? Well, my graduate, one of my most recent graduate students uh, and I have developed um, a computer model that actually predicts the growth of forests. Hmm. Um sort of of one species or mixed species. And you can actually, when you run these simulations, you see that they can mimic uh, real-life situations. So we have some databases for forested, uh, well, plantations of, of trees that were grown and observed for 80 years. And so we used those data, those empirical data, to test the predictions of our uh, earliest uh, forest simulations, and the the model predicted dead on what the foresters observed over 80 years. Wow, that's incredible. And I think it's a really good point to drive home to the listeners is the fact that when you hear the word theory or the word modeling uh, in any sort of science reporting, you know, it's not like you're just making these numbers up off the top of your head and saying, Eureka, they work. You're truthing this again with decades, in this case, worth of data uh, of a real system. It's not like this is nebulous being pulled out of thin air. Right. I, I think it's an important thing that you just just mentioned for all of us to bear in mind, and that is uh, words have very different definitions when they're used in a different context. So if I say to you, I have a theory about where I lost my wallet, <laughs> it's totally different from saying I have a theory about evolution. Right, right. It's, uh, and, and that's kind of, you know, the challenge of any language is just understanding, you know, what context is it being said in. But yeah, I don't know if popular media at this point is doing a good job of conveying that to the public or even, you know, us as science scientists and having to communicate our sciences. It's it's very important that, uh, you know, those distinctions get made so that we don't see a lot of the confusion that arises uh, as it tends to do in this country, at least. Well, you're certainly making a huge effort, too. Oh, thank you. <laughs> so... One of the things I really like is this, this realm of speculative evolution. And, on, you know, in my free time, I'm a huge sci-fi nerd. I, I love the thinking about the search for extraterrestrial life and such. And, you know, one of the attractive things about your work is that, again, it can be uh, it's based in the laws of physics, something that we see applies, uh, you know, across the universe, at least in the scales that we're able to understand now. And in speculating about evolution on other planets um, you know, if a photosynthetic organism or a set of photosynthetic organisms were to arise, I mean, would you th- think, in your opinion, that these patterns would be repeatable? Would we recognize something on another planet as saying, hey, you know, there's a shape that is really good at supporting itself and getting as much surface area as possible out and, uh, you know, transporting a liquid to its tissues? I, I Yeah, I, I think my answer would be absolutely. If, if Mars had been big enough to retain its atmosphere, there would be tree-like photosynthetic organisms uh, growing in forests on Mars. Hmm. Um, uh, the, 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 the biophysical principles, at least if we're dealing with a carbon-based life form, 
And if we were dealing with a planet where life evolved using externally provided energy, like light from a star, I think you would see parallel evolution in many remarkable ways. That's uh, very exciting to think about. And, uh, you know, you go to a sci-fi movie and you go, ugh, they made everything look like it looks on Earth. Well, there might be something to that. You know, the idea of thinking of something so outlandish based on life as we know it, uh, you know, might have to be a little bit more grounded in reality in the end. Well, I'm a big sci-fi nerd myself, so I... I can, you know, suspend my disbelief <laughs> and have fun watching watching movies. Uh, I don't think we'll ever discover an anti gravity device. So, uh, again, I have to dis- have to say, okay, let's not worry about this. I don't <laughs> think we're ever going to see ants the size of an elephant because their exoskeletons would crack. They right. could never support their weight. Uh, but yeah, I, you know, I, it's it's definitely the case that biology as we know it is repetitive we see even on this planet different groups of evolving organisms converging on the same physical solutions to life for example if you um, close your eyes and imagine the profile of a porpoise of an ichthyosaur of a bony fish almost anything that moves rapidly in water, you'll see that the surface area of its back is more than the surface area of its belly. And that's Bernoulli's principle. As you're moving through the water, the water that's moving over your back has to move a greater distance. That means it has to move faster. If it moves faster, it means it has a lower pressure. If it has a lower pressure, it's giving you lift. Oh, okay. So that's why that form repeats itself through the animal kingdom. Yeah, well, you have reptiles, you have mammals, and you have bony fish, and they've all evolved to basically take advantage of a very simple physical principle. Right. And I think my favorite example of that in the plant world is the fact that, uh, you know, the New World, the Americas have cacti, and uh, the Old World, so Africa, for instance, has euphorbias, uh, two very unrelated families but all have converged on similar strategies, at least in arid regions, for conserving water and reducing surface area. A beautiful example, and you can go to Madagascar and see a family called, and it sounds like I'm going to stutter, it's the Dideriaceae, that look like cacti and euphorbs. Wow, yeah, I had no idea about those. That's incredible. So, I mean, in the in terms of where you're going with this, as computing power gets better, uh, you know, almost overnight, you know, where do you see your simulations and your your kind of the questions you're asking? How are they evolving? You know, for say in the next five to ten years. I mean, it just... well, in the next five to ten years, I will be retired. I'm oh. retiring in a year and a half. <laughs> Congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, but uh, yeah, with supercomputers, uh, are the the ability of scientists to perform very complicated simulations very, very rapidly uh, is increasing at an exponential rate. Hmm. Uh, Protein folding, uh, chemical reactions, simulations of all sorts um, are exquisitely sophisticated and much more efficient to perform. Hmm. 
I don't know what the limit is. I mean, right now, uh, I have many colleagues working with artificial intelligence wow. and robotics. Uh, so robots that can actually learn as they're failing to perform functions. Huh. So just refining the process of doing tasks. Yes. Yes. Essentially evolving in a digital way. Yes, yes. And there are uh, colleagues all over the world who are simulating artificial life forms and mimicking evolution in different ways, mm -hmm. like for animals, bacteria, et cetera, et cetera. Very cool. Oh, I mean, it's the, the future is a tantalizing subject to think about. But, um, you know, you look at plants or at least you look at the world in a very different way than most of my guests do. You know, uh, you've got a very unique perspective of thinking about the way plants grow and evolve over time. Um, so I wonder, uh, you know, through your work, what plants have really stood out to you? Are there any individual species or groups of plants that really excite you or just kind of lasting memories or just did something or prove or offer you something surprising or unique? Well, uh, I, I guess I would like to be Doctor Who. <laughs> I'd like to have a TARDIS, and I'd like to go back to the Carboniferous with these giant tree lycopods and horsetails mm. that, created, that created forests that, even though biophysically they'd behave like our forests today, but because these trees were built using very different tissues and very different strategies. I'd like to I'd like to have seen what those things were. These were the monarchs of the coal swamps. Uh the tree lycopods could grow to a height of 125, 135 feet. Wow. The tree calamites were the largest organism that ever existed on this planet. One plant well, from above ground, it would look like a forest, but all those trees that could grow to 85 feet in height were all interconnected by stems underground. That would be one giant plant. Holy Imagine a, a forest that was really one plant. Huh. So on that note, you know, you mentioned these 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 relatives of things that are still living today. So the club mosses and the you know the equisetum and the ferns. Um, you know, they were once giants, and today they're largely relegated to these kind of shaded understory environments. What, what biophysically changed that? Uh, <laughs> do you know okay, that? Okay, so, yeah, well, uh, let me just uh, make a correction here, and that is that the the understory lycopods and horsetails and the small ferns, they evolved at the same, their lineage evolved at the same time as the tree so you had an early divergence in the evolution of each of those groups. One went towards the tree habit, and the other remained herbaceous. Oh. And what happened was, oh, in 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 repeated catastrophes and global changes, the arborescent representatives in those lineages went to extinction. I see. So in the in the case of the giant lycopods and the giant horsetails, they were highly adapted to giant epicontinental swamps. And as those as plate tectonics changed over millions of years, the geographic distribution of those swamps diminished and 
retreated and got smaller and smaller until eventually those specialized habitats uh, disappeared. Fascinating. Uh, it's a really good way of looking at it. Now, uh, you know, I've always kind of pictured it as they just gradually got smaller over time, but it's kind of like dinosaurs and birds. They branched off early on from a similar, uh, you know, ancestry and then one just won out over the other in the terms of... Well, don't by any means apologize because from our conversation, I can tell you that you know as much botany as some of my colleagues. <laughs> well, thank you. <laughs> no, but that's I, I, it's a really cool story to be told. And, you know, eventually those large arborescent swamps became these coal deposits that, you know, kind of came back to bite us. So... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, right, yeah. exactly. So. It's interesting that we're actually using the fossil remains of extinct plants to make our habitat uh, less livable. <laughs> oh, geez, I don't know if that's irony or what. It's just... Uh... Well, it, it, evolution will always bite you. Yeah, that's true. It's It's a question of whether it's hard or soft, right? Exactly. Wonderful. Well, Dr. Nicholas, this is fascinating. I highly recommend everyone uh, take a stab at looking at some of your work. Uh, you've, you've done some really interesting things, and it's a very refreshing view on evolution and uh, botany in general. I really thank you for taking the time to talk with us today. My great pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. Wonderful. You have yourself a great day. Take care. Cheers. Bye. Bye. All right. What a great conversation. It was so nice revisiting that. Dr. Nicholas changed the way I looked at the plant world, and I highly recommend you look up more information about his work, which you can find in the show notes for this episode, as well as links to everything from our Patreon to our merch and a place where you can buy my book. All of those are excellent ways to support the podcast. Speaking of Patreon, I do have a shout out to the latest producers on this podcast. A big thank you goes out to Jillian, Karen, Nathan, Andrea, and Peter. All of them went over to patreon.com slash plants and signed up at the producer credit level. So they're supporting this podcast at the maximum level each and every month. And I could not be doing it without their support as well as the support of all of my other patrons. I thank them from the bottom of my heart. But that is it for me this week. I thank you all for listening. And until next time, hang in there, stay healthy, and get outside if you can. This is your host, Matt, signing out. Adios, everyone.